Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hey everyone. So this is a short episode this week, and actually it's primarily just me with some updates from the nature conferences I attended the last two weeks and some updates on what's coming next for the podcast. And I have an important question for you all relating to how I deliver the podcast in the future. We'll be back to standard interview podcasts in two weeks. I have several in various stages of production, so stay tuned to hear about some of those. And in fact, I've included a fascinating segment from the next episode that you'll want to stick around for to hear. So the last two weeks, I've had the great fortune of attending two wonderful nature conferences. The first was the California Naturalist Conference this year in Tahoe City, up by beautiful Lake Tahoe. And the second was the California Native Plant Society Conference, and it was conveniently in my hometown of San Jose. So let me share a few of the eye-opening topics and lessons I learned. But first, if you're unfamiliar with these organizations, allow me to give you a very quick overview. The California Naturalist Program is a statewide program affiliated with the University of California's Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. It's designed to teach people about the state's ecology and then engage those participants in the study of the state's ecology and stewardship thereof. Most states have programs like this, and they're usually called Master Naturalists. So if this sounds interesting to you, just Google your state with Master Naturalist appended, and I'm sure you'll find something. And the California Native Plant Society is a nonprofit founded in 1965 with a mission to protect California's native plants and their natural habitats. So I knew CMPS was a large organization, but I was really surprised to find out how big it really is. They have local chapters throughout the state. And somewhat to my surprise, this conference was actually quite a bit larger than the California Naturalist Conference, both in terms of number of attendees and the number of programs and workshops that they offered. But in both cases... I had some wonderful happenstance encounters with Nature's Archive listeners and several past guests, too. I even ran into two Patreon patrons that was wonderful to be able to speak to and get their feedback and opinions. And special thank you to Rick for all the great podcast guest ideas that he passed along to me. I'm definitely looking into those. Both conferences offered session tracks, so I had to make some difficult choices as to which ones to attend. And in general, I gravitated towards sessions that related to either indigenous knowledge and culture as it relates to the environment, wildfire ecology and management, or communication and outreach. I also had the opportunity to attend a day-long lichen workshop, which is something I've really wanted to do ever since I interviewed Carrie Knudsen way back, I don't even know, a year and a half ago. And this workshop included a lecture period, a field trip, and some microscopy and chemical analysis. So really the whole spectrum there. So it was great fun, and I think I learned a lot. I literally took over 40 pages of notes combined between these two conferences. So there's so much I'd love to share, but it would be boring just to have me drone on. So I'm hoping to turn some of these things into future episodes. And there's a number of people I met at the conference that I think would make for great guests. So I'm working that avenue as well. But in the meantime, I am going to drone on and share at least three things that really stuck with me, including some of the nuance and technicalities related to wildfire, some of the themes I heard from the indigenous talks, and starting out, impacts of nitrogen deposition. So nitrogen deposition is literally, as the name implies, depositing of nitrogen in our environments. And it's especially prone to happen in areas near cities and near intense agriculture, And this can add up to multiple pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. So think about it. It's like somebody going out and dropping lots of fertilizer on the native landscape. So cars are well-known emitters of nitrogen, and in particular, nitrous oxide, or NOx, 
has historically been the main concern. And this is generally what's measured by the various authorities. So the advent of catalytic converters now decades ago significantly reduced NOx. So by the way, NOx was the focus over this period of time because it had a lot of well-documented negative health effects affecting cardiovascular and lungs and uh, cancer and all sorts of bad things. So it's definitely something that needed to get out of the environment. However, catalytic converters, the way they work, they use a reductant, typically ammonia, which of course still also contains nitrogen. And the desired process of this changes the form of the NOx that would normally be emitted. So the result is NOx is no longer a major emission because of catalytic converters, but nitrogen is still making it into the environment in these other forms. And this is often missed or ignored because of the historical focus on NOx. So nitrogen deposition is still occurring, even if we don't have all of the deleterious health effects that NOx caused, and it's dramatically changing soil nutrient composition. So this, in turn, allows new plant communities to encroach with the aid of this nitrogen. Deposition can also change water body chemistry, and it's been linked to many destructive algal blooms. And this is not just a California problem, it's a global problem. So electric cars, more access to mass transit, modified agricultural practices can significantly reduce this problem, but nitrogen deposition continues to get lost in all of the noise. So my past interview with Dr. Stuart Weiss touched on many of these points, and I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And he was actually a speaker at the conference as well. So the big takeaway here is if you're working on sensitive habitats, habitats with soils that are typically low nutrient, it's it's a good idea to understand what nitrogen deposition is doing to your lands. All right, so hopefully we can get the word out further on nitrogen deposition and start to make some more progress there. Now, from a wildfire standpoint, again, All of the different talks I heard, is probably close to 10, made it very clear that wildfire is a complex and nuanced process. And that was some of the the key wording choices is it's a process. It's something that the land has always had and plants in many cases that are exposed to fire have adapted to deal with that. In fact, some plants require fire to complete the reproductive cycle. And then there's the whole concept of secession, where if you don't have disturbance on the landscape, things fill in and suddenly you don't have the same biodiversity that you've always had. Of course, we see that because we've been aggressively extinguishing fires for 100 plus years now. So it's always striking to me that in many cases, if not most cases, the historical pre-European fire return interval, that's how often fire is expected, was much more frequent than what is seen today. So on the one hand, this is probably obvious because we've spent the last 100 years, as I said, aggressively extinguishing fires. But on the other hand, in the last decade or so, it seems like fire frequency and occurrence has dramatically increased. Like we see these massive wildfires on the news quite a bit. So while it's true that some locations have seen fire too frequently, even over the last multiple decades, the bigger problems have been the intensity of the wildfires and the impact to an unprepared public who still largely operates from this perspective that wildfire is bad and should be extinguished at all costs. So what we see on the news are these huge, intense fires of intensities that are not natural and impacting people who live near the fire zones in the Wui. And yes, if it continues like this, the return interval is very likely going to be too great in many places. But in fact, many landscapes still don't have enough fire compared to what the historical norms have been. So one interesting presentation discussed how these historical fire return intervals are determined using fire scars on tree trunks. 
So I'm sure if you've walked in any forest that has seen fire, you've probably noted one of these fire scars. They're often kind of triangular shaped, maybe uh, a foot to three feet tall towards the base of the trunk. So many times a fire will actually damage the bark and the cambium layers of a tree forming that scar, but the tree survives and it continues to grow. So as it grows, tree rings and tree cores can be analyzed and you can actually capture evidence of when past fire scarring occurred and how long ago it was based on the tree rings. And then you can deduce the intervals between fires. So when you have old growth trees that are centuries old, you can get a clear view back, say like to the 1600s, or in some cases longer, if you have really good old trees that haven't degraded. So with a sufficient data set of trees from a given location, in other words, more than one tree, so you can cross-reference your results, researchers can get a clear view on what that historical fire return interval was. So presenters also spoke about fire history and behavior in high-altitude red fir forests, as well as middle-elevation mixed coniferous forest, chaparral, and grasslands, ranging from interior locations to moist coastal locations. So that gave a wonderful perspective on the varied expectations and behaviors that you see from wildfire. So of course, conclusions are that climate change, which at least in the West, results in longer dry seasons and hotter weather, was the most pervasive challenge to restoring normal fire regimes. Now that's another topic for another day, and that's something that will take a long time to repair. In the mid and low elevations, there was a lot of discussion about invasions of non-native annual grasses that seemed to be a common concern. And in fact, this is a problem in deserts. Deserts have been seeing more wildfires as well because these grasses in all of these locations provide a dry fuel and they can connect together shrubs and trees and other vegetation that would have otherwise been separated by bare soil. And in forests, Lack of fire has caused meadows to fill in with trees. I was talking about secession before. And sparse forests become much, much more dense with smaller trees that act as ladder fuels. So a ladder fuel, as the name implies, may catch fire and then it allows flames to reach higher and higher, ultimately resulting in a crown fire, which is much more dangerous than just burning off the the litter and small vegetation on the forest floor, which is, say, what many historical fires did. So, of course, there was a lot of discussion on how to mitigate these problems, ranging from prescribed and cultural burning to mechanical interventions, and they all have trade-offs. So, for example, prescribed and cultural burns have a major trade-off of being human-ignited, obviously, and human-managed. So, as a result, the risk calculation is much different because people are clearly liable for however it turns out. So, this triggers an extremely risk-averse response from the various authorities that are involved. These burns occur primarily when weather and resource availability is just right, and that's usually in the spring when resources aren't strapped working other fires and when vegetative moisture is higher. This means that these fires are very limited from multiple dimensions. You can't have very many of them just because of resources and timing. They don't burn hot enough because of the weather factors, so they don't quite provide the same value that you would expect. And ecologically speaking, California's fire season is typically July through October, and that's true in much of the West. So many plants are adapted to that seasonality. So off-season fires may burn off some fuel, but they oftentimes don't provoke the proper ecological systematic response that you would want. 
complex, lots of things to think about there. And as for the indigenous culture sessions, it was great to hear keynotes from representatives of the Washoe and Amamutsin nations and numerous other speakers representing other recognized and unrecognized tribes. So yes, there are many tribes that are not recognized by the U.S. government, and that means they face even harder challenges and a more difficult battle for recognition and land access. But one of the most consistent requests for land managers coming from these nations of all types was to get to know whose land you are on, of course, and engage with the local tribes. It was clear to me from those who spoke that they have a deep, deep understanding of their local ecologies and would benefit most situations that land managers have. So at the same time, most of these groups also recognize that they don't always have the capacity to respond with everyone and engage immediately. So they asked for patience and persistence uh, to work in partnership. So there's so much more I'd like to say, but I cannot really accurately represent their knowledge. I don't want to try. That wouldn't be right. Uh, so I do recommend that if you have opportunities to listen to any of your local tribes talk about their relationship with the environment, it can be very, very eye-opening. That's what kept me busy the last few weeks. I met some wonderful people, and as I said, I've even identified some future podcast guests. I'm, In fact, I already have two lined up. Uh, and speaking of future podcast guests, the next episode in two weeks from now will be with Alan Fish of the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory. You might remember Alan from the field guide episode that uh, that we did along with Cricket Raspit. I met Alan on a cool and densely foggy day on Hawk Hill up in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. In fact, you can see the Golden Gate from there when not foggy, thus the name of the observatory, Golden Gate Raptor Observatory. We were pretty much fogged out, unfortunately, from seeing any raptors, though there was one really close encounter that we had that you'll hear in the episode when I release that in two weeks. But regardless, it was a great discussion of raptor migrations and how they're influenced by weather and topography and other things. And the location itself is really a character worth learning about. We talk about some of that history, too. So since this episode wasn't quite ready yet this week... I thought I'd still share a little snippet that I found to be especially fascinating. So I asked Alan about some research that he had been telling me about recently, and here is his answer. Here goes. Let me tell you a little bit about that. So this is the work of recently received his doctorate, Ryan Borber. Ryan has been working with Josh Hull on a variety of raptor projects for at least five or six years and working as a volunteer bander for GGRO. Over the years of banding hawks at GGRO, one of the things that we've all kind of made fun of is how messy some of the beaks are on some of these raptors coming in. And particularly the bird-eating hawks, sharp-shinned hawks and merlins, which are falcons, bird-eating falcons, you end up with a lot of food particles around their, meaning feathers and sometimes a little blood, sometimes even tissue, around their feet and their beaks. So Ryan set up a study where all of the banding volunteers had small vials of alcohol and a little swab, and they would collect that material off of the beaks, what he called the jerky, off the beaks of sharp-shinned hawks and merlins specifically. And then work with a genetics lab at UC Davis on using DNA barcoding, analyzing for the full range of possible bird-prey species what all of these might be. And I was just looking at the sharp-shinned hawk data, so that's more in my head. Ryan just gave a presentation to the British Ornithological Union on this as a, a tremendous 
community science project because he did something really interesting with the data. He, first of all, figured out all the species that were represented on sharp-shinned hawk feet and bills over the course of two seasons. And that itself is amazing. Incredible. So yeah. And I don't have the entire heat. Basically, out of something like 600 individual swabs, we got something like 1,400 different individual birds. So somewhere between one or three prey birds per hawk. And then on top of that, just an incredible array of something like 50 species of songbirds. And some of them extremely common, like the thrushes, Swainson's thrush, hermit thrush, really common. Yellow warbler, really common. Fox sparrow, really common. And then a whole lot that are like ones of twos and ones and twos. A range in size for sharp-shinned hawks from band-tailed pigeon, which are two to three times as big as a sharp-shinned hawk, to a, an anna's hummingbird, which are quite small of course. So really interesting range that was possible as well. What he then did, though, that was really fascinating is he was able to show using eBird data for the region to the north of the Golden Gate and modeled to be the area that these birds probably just flew through and they might have actually eaten those prey birds along the way in these counties. He got all the eBird data for the weeks specifically just before those individual raptors were caught and then considered how raptors selected prey birds either relative to their proportions that they were existing in eBird data in the wild or actually against the proportions, suggesting that there was some really intense selection. Okay, so you'll have to tune in to the full episode to hear the conclusions of this study and everything else that Alan and I discussed. So other upcoming episodes to tell you about, I'm super excited that Dr. Sarah Rose, a world-renowned spider expert and author of a new spider field guide, uh, will be on the show in just a few weeks. I also have interviews scheduled to discuss slime molds and slime mold photography, which is just fascinating. And uh, some, of the, some of these little tiny creatures, you would just be amazed at what they look like. I found a wonderful guest to speak about hydrology and water management, which is such a fundamental and important topic for the environment and for people, yet some of the most important aspects of this are often overlooked. Water management is huge. Water infrastructure is important from an environmental impact standpoint, you know, both good and bad, and from uh, an ability for people to continue to live their lives. So that will be a fascinating discussion. And as I said, there's other ones lined up as well. So I'm really looking forward to this next set of podcasts. I don't think that my list of guests and topics has ever been as deep as it is right now. So super, super excited about that. So I mentioned at the beginning that I have an important question for you. So I've been attempting to maintain a biweekly release schedule nonstop throughout the year for the last couple of years. So this means 26 episodes a year, right? So I would really love to offer more episodes, and it's part of my roadmap to do this as I ramp up Jumpstart Nature, but that can be very challenging to maintain that cadence. For example, sometimes, as happened twice here recently, I had some guests ask me to wait to release an episode. I had some late cancellations, and we're still in a pandemic. I've had people literally get sick and have to delay, and I even got sick, and I also had some other life requirements interfere with delivering the podcast. So even when I have a couple of episodes as buffer, uh, I do sometimes hit these spells where it's hard to maintain the cadence. So here's what I'm thinking of doing, and this is where I want your feedback. I'm thinking of breaking up the year into seasons, probably three seasons, and each season would offer 
about 10 episodes, but released weekly. So I would stockpile these 10 episodes, release them week after week after week. And then there would be a break between seasons. That would average out to be seven or eight weeks, depending on holidays. So the result, three seasons, 10 episodes each, that's 30 episodes a year. So this net result is a slight increase in the amount of content that I'm producing. And of course, in the future, maybe I can increase it to 11 episodes per season or 12 episodes per season. You know, we'll see how that goes. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I would start with 10 if I do this. And this will allow me to do this work in batches. I think it will allow for more efficiency and balance as I need to work on jumpstart nature plans as well. So what do you think? I haven't decided on this yet, but I'd really appreciate your feedback. And oh, by the way, I've mentioned Jumpstart Nature several times. Uh, if you're passionate about nature and storytelling or have an interest in podcast production or audio content or interviewing any of the things that, that maybe sound related to podcasting, I am looking for help in a variety of capacities, ranging from guest coordination to editing uh, to some exciting creative opportunities with the future Jumpstart Nature podcast. So yes, I have another podcast in mind. This podcast is going to be totally different than Nature's Archive, a different approach, a different audience, more creative and highly produced. And the goal is of that podcast is to really challenge our assumptions about nature and the environment in a way that inspires people, the public, maybe people who aren't as connected to nature as this audience is, to take action. So I think I have some wonderful topical ideas for this podcast but I'm not gonna be able to do it on my own. So if any of this sounds at all interesting to you, let me know, I'd be happy to tell you more and answer any questions. You know, I'm not looking for anyone to make huge time commitments or anything like that, but I am looking for some help. And if you wanna exercise these muscles, you know, the creative muscles, the audio production muscles, and get some experience, this would be a great opportunity. And I really do hope to turn this into some of the first paying opportunities within the Jumpstart Nature organization as that comes to fruition in 2023. Though, again, I can't commit to that at this point. There's still too many, too many blind curves ahead as to how this will pan out. All right, so that's all I had for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking with me here to the end. And I hope you're looking forward to the next set of Nature's Archive podcasts that I have lined up as much as I am. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work, so please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you. Thank you.